a time for reflection, isn't it? Do you find that? So often we look back over the previous 12 months and uh, we reflect on what's happened. Maybe it was a good year. Maybe it wasn't so great. Maybe it was dreadful. Um, quite likely for many of us, uh, it was maybe a mixture of some good and some bad and some bit of average, possibly. But often at the end of the year, we tend to look back, don't we? And sort of contemplate on the, the previous year. And then after doing that, often we tend to look forward. Maybe, uh, maybe you do that and you sort of think about the year ahead and uh, maybe you think about what you want to do in that year. Maybe you might think about people you want to see. Uh, maybe you think about other things that want to happen in that year. I guess that's when New Year's resolutions come into their own, isn't it? Now, personally, I'm not a great fan of New Year's resolutions because often I'll make them on the 1st of January and then by the 2nd, uh, they're not going so well. You know, for me, just making promises to myself doesn't work. I need, uh, I need God's grace and his help to do, to do anything to make major changes. Maybe you're the same. Are you the same? You can encourage me by nodding. That would be really good. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> so before we move on, let's just pause for a moment. I wonder, what have you got to thank God for from the last year? Just think about it for a moment. What have you got to thank God for? the previous 12 months? How have you grown spiritually in the last year? Have you grown spiritually in the last year? Might be the first question to ask. What maybe were the significant occasions of 2007? And then maybe looking forward to 2008, what are you asking God for this year? What are you asking God for in 2008? How do you want your relationship with him to grow this year? What are you asking him for? What, do, what are you asking God to do for you this year? What will maybe you do for him this year? What is God stirring in your heart to serve him maybe in this year? What are maybe some of the new things you may try for him in the year ahead? It's all too easy to settle in life, isn't it? It's all too easy to settle spiritually. And uh, I'm going to talk this morning about someone who didn't settle. Someone who lived their life really for God's glory. But let's be really clear, that's not the easy option. It's far easier, isn't it, to sit back and let other people take all the risks. But if you do that, then other people get all the excitement as well. I mean, imagine for a moment... This may be difficult for some of you, but imagine for a moment you are an aspiring football player. You know, you're young, you're fit, you're, you know, you're, you're really good at football, and, uh, you know, since a young age you've loved the game, you've played in non-league matches for years, and, you know, you think you're doing okay, you're sort of trying your best at the footy, and then one day... One day you get the call. You get a call. Imagine it on your mobile phone. One day it rings. And there, on the other end of the phone, wanting to speak to you, is a guy by the name of Alex. Alex Ferguson. He introduces himself as. For those of you who are not up to speed, this is the manager of Manchester United. A little sort of, you know, two-bit team up with you. I can say that because John's not here. So you've got on the phone Alex Ferguson, manager of Manchester United Football Club, one of the world's largest 
one of the world's most successful clubs, and he's on your phone wanting to speak to you. Imagine it. He's heard all about you. He's heard all about your football skills. In fact, he's even seen you play. Though you didn't realise it. And he's on your phone, calling you, wanting you to come and try out for a place in United squad. Well, some of you look like, hey, that was my dream. <laughs> Maybe it still is. I mean, imagine it. You know, he's on your phone. What do you do? I mean, let's face it. Manchester's not the easiest place to get to. Uh, it doesn't seem that far from here, but it's just a difficult journey. It takes ages. And, you know, you've got all your friends around you here. And, oh, you might have to move. Imagine the hassle. You might have to move there. And, and let's face it, you can always watch the team on the telly, can't you? You can always turn the TV on and there on Sky Sports, you can watch the team play. And unless you might end up with a multi-million pound salary, but is it really worth the hassle? Uh, of course it is. You'd be mad not to go, wouldn't you? I mean, it's much easier to watch the game in the comfort of your front room than it is to go out on a cold winter Saturday and play. But listen, if you were that football player, I want to suggest to you, you would be in your car, you would be driving to Manchester before the call had finished. Wouldn't you? On your hands freaking, obviously. You would be. Opportunities like that don't come around every day. And when you do, you run at them before the person changes their mind and says, oh, wrong number, sorry, and hangs up. You'd go for it, wouldn't you? You had an invitation to get in the game, not just to watch from the sidelines. You would take it if you were that footballer. And you know, it's not that dissimilar when it comes to us and God because he has given us an invitation to get in the game. He has given each one of us an invitation a call, if you like, to get in on the action. Yet many just sit on the sidelines. Many just watch others. But you don't get any rewards for just watching, do you? Rewards, trophies, cups, or as the Bible calls them, crowns, and we'll come to that later, are given to those who are in the game, not just to those who sat on the terraces and cheered every now and then. See, in the Christian life, God doesn't necessarily measure success, but he measures faithfulness, and he rewards faithfulness. So what are you living for? What are you going for? I want to speak in the next, just in today, in the next few weeks, a little series I've called Making the Most of the Rest of Your Life. Making the Most of the Rest of Your Life. I don't know about you, but I want to make the most of the rest of my life. So what are you living for? Is it a next pay rise? Or a new car? Or a bigger house? Or the latest gadget? Or to get married? Or to have kids? Or something else? What is it that you're living for? In case you haven't noticed, advertising around us is constantly pushing us to have the latest thing, or to look beautiful, or to have some new clothes, or a new car, whatever it might be. 
They've been said that the job of advertising is to take away your self-worth and to sell it back to you at the price of the product. That's the job of advertising, to take away your self-worth and to sell it back to you at the price of the product. Whether it be the Mercedes car or the latest lipstick or whatever it might be that they're trying to sell you. Adverts aren't there just to have quiet interest, just in case you might perchance be interested in a product and maybe think, well, think about it. They're after your money. And it's easy to get caught up in all that. It's easy to get caught up that you know, think that to be anybody or to achieve anything, you need to have the latest thing or latest look, whatever it might be. Listen, don't be fooled. As Christians, we should be living for something greater, something far more worthwhile, something that will last which is why I want to spend the first few weeks of this year talking about making the most of the rest of our lives. And this morning, I want to encourage you to make the most of the rest of your life and to live for God's glory. To live for God's glory. And to help us, I want us to look at someone who did just that. So if you've got your Bibles with you, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Away from verse 1. <coughs> Meanwhile, Acts 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He's referring to people who are Christians, basically. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless, they heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could, not, he could see nothing. So he led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, he did not eat or drink anything. For in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The, court, the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told, told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, who said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. 
And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Paul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Let's pray together and we'll have a look at this passage. Father, we thank you for this account we've got of Saul, or as he became Paul, our Lord's encounter with you. And we pray as we spend a few moments looking at it together that you would teach us, please. You would apply this passage to our lives. As we learn something more of you this morning, would you speak to us? Would we hear from you, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Saul, or as he became the Apostle Paul, was definitely someone who lived for God's glory. But before he was a Christian, before he met with Jesus, he was a passionate persecutor of the church and was committed to killing off anybody who just said that they'd follow Jesus. But God met him. He met him powerfully. And that encounter changed him forever. Now there's much we could say from this passage, and for, for now we're just going to note a few things about Paul, about the guy that became the Apostle Paul, he who wrote much, in fact, of our New Testament that we have today. And firstly, we know about Paul that he was committed. Paul was committed. He was the sort of guy that was committed to anything he did. Now, I, mean, I can imagine Paul making an ethics model. You know, maybe you did as a kid. And he'd be the sort of person that would be committed to finishing it. Not just doing half of it and then leaving it on the shelf or in the box with only half the bits left. He, he would be quite committed to finishing it off accurately, making sure it was all right and maybe putting it on display. He was committed. When he was working against Jesus, he was committed. He did that passionately with fervour. He was committed to destroying the church, really. He believed wrongly, obviously, that what he was doing at that time somehow honoured God and was the right thing to do. Obviously it wasn't, and Jesus met him and changed him. I think too often today's society has forgotten what it means to be committed. Now, only a generation or two ago, we would have had a completely different understanding of what commitment meant. But today, it's lost a lot of what it really means. I mean, we know that marriages can go wrong, even for those who are following Jesus. But even putting that to one side, just the society we're in today doesn't hold commitment in the same value that it did maybe a couple of generations ago. Everything is disposable, be it cans or consumer goods that never seem to last as long as they used to, or is that just my experience? Or maybe even people or relationships. That's not the way that God wants it to be. It's not how he wants us to live. He's the ultimate model of commitment. If you're looking for somebody to look at to show you what commitment is like, then God is the perfect example. See, he has proved himself faithful. He has proved himself committed to us time and time again. Moses sang in Deuteronomy 32, He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. God is faithful and he's committed to us. In Philippians 1, Paul says that, he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God will finish what he has started. God is not the sort of person like us who will get through half of the earthquake's model and get bored. Or lose half of the bits. Or mislay the instructions. And just put it to the top of the cupboard, never really to come out again. God finishes what he starts. And what he started in you, he wants to bring to completion. What he started in you, he wants to finish. Isn't that encouraging? Friends, it should be. It should be. God wants to finish what he started in you. He is committed. Secondly, we see from this passage that Paul had a powerful encounter with God. It was powerful, wasn't it? He was blinded. He heard Jesus speak to him. He had a powerful encounter with the living God. Now, maybe you haven't had a blinding light like Paul did, but God wants our encounter with him to be powerful, nevertheless. Now, most of us don't get angelic visitations or blinding lights like that, revealing Jesus to us. Maybe some of you do, or will do, but it's not the norm. However, all of us are told to be filled with the Spirit. And that's a powerful encounter with God. In Scripture, whenever someone was filled or baptised in the Holy Spirit, something happened. There was some evidence of God coming. There was some evidence of the encounter with God. Maybe it was speaking a different language. Maybe it was prophesying. Maybe it was praising God. Maybe it was falling over. Whatever it was, isn't really so important. Is the fact that meeting with God is a powerful and should be for us a powerful experience. So I wonder for you, have you had that encounter with God? You might call it being baptised or filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you had that? Do you know what that is? So I'm not talking about you becoming a Christian. This is separate. It may happen at the same time. Sometimes it does. Often it happens sometime later. For me, I became a Christian at quite a young age. And I was a Christian for many, many years before I was filled with the Holy Spirit, before I, I experienced that powerful encounter with God. Now, for me, the main reason of delay was due to my pride. So I thought that somehow I could hold it all together on my own, and I didn't need that. And it took a while for God to get through to me. I'm grateful to say he did eventually. But for me, that, that changed my Christian experience completely being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptised with the Spirit. Suddenly there was a powerful edge to being a Christian. I had a powerful encounter with the living God. You see, when it does happen, you'll know about it. In Acts 9 here, Paul is, is um, in, in, sorry, in verse 17, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a bit after he was blinded by God. So he needed it as well. It was important and necessary. Even though he did have the voice, he had the blinding light. He still needed to, be, needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even though Jesus had spoke to him direct, he still needed that to be in the Holy Spirit. So friends, if Paul did, I think it's quite reasonable to suggest that we do as well. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, he'd had the voice. He'd had the blinding light. He'd been blind and then he saw again, but he still needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time to develop that subject further this morning, but 
genuinely encourage you, be filled with the Spirit. Or as a better translation, the Bible says, go on being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just a one-off some years ago, but it needs to be a regular, daily even occurrence in our lives, an experience that is ongoing for us. Because we think, actually, I'm not sure that I am filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, perhaps some of you could be, and explain it to you. Pray with you. Come and chat to one of us afterwards. And go through some scriptures with you. Help you with it. It is, is key to being uh, a Christian. Key to what God wants our experience of Him to be. Then thirdly, we see that looking at the life of Paul, that he kept going and ran the race. Now after Max realized this morning during worship, I turned to him and said, thanks very much, you did a sense half my preach. Which uh, he probably said in five minutes that I was going to take 40 to say, so maybe that isn't a bad thing. But Paul kept going and ran the race. Now he knew what it was to face hardship. It wasn't always easy for him. He knew what trials were, but he didn't give up. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul compares himself to some of the false teachers, the false apostles, false apostles that are around at the time. And he says this. He says, "Eight servants of God, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more." He goes on. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the ocean. Three, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own countrymen, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, and danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. I've laboured and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure for all the churches. He knew what it was to face a bit of hardship, some trials, but he kept going. He didn't give up. When life gets difficult, when it becomes hard to follow Jesus, are you ever tempted to give up? Are you ever tempted to just Chuck it all in. Or maybe in an area you serve in, you think, maybe even in this church, uh, or perhaps outside, and when things are tough, and maybe you don't get the results you expected, or you know, some things aren't happening how you hoped they would do. What do you do? Do you keep going, or do you give up? Paul kept going. He stayed true. And there are at least two occasions, maybe more, where Paul describes the Christian life as a race. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. And in Philippians 3, he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, sound like a runner, doesn't it, in a race, I press on towards the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Paul was committed to keep going. 
He knew what his race was, and he was going to keep running it. He knew what God had called him to, and he was going for it. The trouble is that you and I get easily distracted. Or maybe it's just me. I think possibly not. It's like when you, maybe uh, you go onto the internet. I, I go onto the internet, I often look at the BBC News website. It's only halfway through the day, I think. Well, I heard the news in the morning. I was going to see what's happening around lunchtime. I look at the news website. And the trouble with the news website is through the bottom of the page is a technology section. Now, technology section is crap. Because it isn't just the world news, it's you know, the latest gadget or the latest te- development in technology. Or in, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I thought, oh, that's all right. And it leads off to the blog and the writer can talk about his study's been to and the latest product was and how things have been developed. And before I know it, that's five minutes. An hour. I only went to look at headlines. Easy done, isn't it? Easy to get distracted. The writer to the Hebrews, in fact, says this. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, everything that distracts us. He goes on, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Friends, the Christian life is a race. Now, athletes need to train, don't they? Maybe some of you have been Olympic athletes in the past. Maybe in your youth, you, you, know, you ran for your school or your university. Maybe you were the 100-metre champion. You can imagine what it would have been like, can't you? For the successful athlete, maybe an Olympic standard athlete, they had to train hard. And in fact, their training was probably all-consuming. Their focus is on winning that race. Their focus is on that starting crystal going off and then going for that line. That's their focus. They're going for it. That Olympic gold medal. That standing on the podium having their national anthem played and receiving the prize. Their focus is on winning that. But in an Olympic race, you only get one winner. But in the Christian race, in the Christian life, we can all win. Paul was focused on winning the prize. And for us as Christians, it's not a prize like a medal, but a crown. Paul says, run in such a way as to get the prize. And sometimes we think as Christians that we shouldn't be interested in rewards. We shouldn't be interested in prizes or crowns because we think that's a bit ungodly. I mean, I can't, I can't be going for that. But that's not the Bible's view. Consistently, throughout Scripture, we are encouraged to run the race to get the prize, to get a reward. And although as Christians we won't be judged for our sin because Jesus has paid that price once and for all. The Bible does talk about us being judged on what we've done. Now let me clear, let me, we'll be really clear about this. It's not about our salvation is somehow at stake. It's not that somehow that's uh, up for grabs or not. Once you've trusted in Jesus, that's it. Your eternal security is secure. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what you did with the opportunities that God gave you. Maybe what you did with the gifts that he gave you. How you used what God had given to you. How you perhaps made a difference in his world. How faithful you were with what God entrusted you, entrusted to you. The Bible makes it clear that the God will reward those 
to a thing total without Christ. See, now is the opportunity for you to make your mark, not for your glory, but for his. Now's your opportunity to die to all that God has for you. So, are you using your gifts? Are you making a difference where you live? In your world? Are you being faithful with what God has given you? Well, I always remember a course I went on a number of years ago now, uh, and the guy had taken the course. It wasn't a Christian thing. It was, uh, it was uh, some training in sound engineering, which is about the class of any Christian seminar you can get, really. And um, he stood up, and the guy, it wasn't, wasn't a Christian, isn't now, to my knowledge, and he, he stood up and said, guys, life, this ain't the rehearsal, it's a gig. I said, what's the point? This is not the rehearsal, this is it, this is the gig. We don't get another shot at this. This is life. And God wants us to go for it with all we have. Run the race. Receive those rewards. Worship Jesus. Now, I used to really struggle with this whole concept of rewards. And I think I struggle with it because I thought it was a bit selfish. You know, why should I want rewards? I don't quite understand that. And that was until I understood the fact that if I get more rewards when I get to heaven, or crowned as the Bible often calls it, I will have more to worship Jesus with. So in Revelation 22, uh, we, we find about a bit, a bit about rewards, and we see that early in Revelation, the elders bow down and lay their crowns down in worship. And the sort of picture is Jesus giving out crowns as rewards, but as he gives you a crown, there's something that you can use in worship. You can lay at his feet and worship him with, just like the elders in Revelation 4. You see, you can't take anything with you. If you're a musician, you can't take your guitar. Uh, you can't take your money and put it in an offering bowl in heaven. I guess you could do that, wouldn't you? I suppose you You can't do it. You can't take anything with you like that. You have to use what's there. And what will be there as Jesus gives rewards are crowns. And as you are rewarded maybe for your faithfulness or for the way you use your gifts, or the way you use the opportunities that God gave you, you can now give that back to Jesus in worship. That's a wonderful picture. We could spend the whole morning talking about that and maybe we'll meet it sometime and elaborate a little bit more. But it's a wonderful picture of Jesus giving rewards and then you've got something to use in worship and worship Jesus with. So friends, it's not bad to run the race, the race to win that prize as you do it, and as you win that prize, then you've got something you can worship Jesus with. Anyone want some crowns? Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, just as we, we finish, we find also about Paul that he finished well. Paul finished well. Paul's focus is always to finish well. He's not just interested in a good start. He's not just concerned about sort of progress along the way. He wants to finish well. And he's always looking forward to that day, that day, as he often talks about, when Jesus will return. And looking forward to that day helps keep him going. I've mentioned before, I think, a book by a guy called Steve Ferrari called Finishing Strong. There's a book aimed at men. And guys, I recommend you read it. It's a good read. 
finishing stroke in full career. So the talent he gives applies to all of us, men and women. And he says, how do I do this? This is what he says. He says, men, it doesn't matter if you had a great start in the Christian life. It doesn't matter if you stumble time and again, or even fallen flat on your face. What matters most is how you finish. The man who hangs in for the long haul with his wife, his kids, and his Lord is an exception these days. Maybe only one in five will do it. But every time I read that, I'm challenged afresh. I thought, oh God, make me one of those one in five. And I would hope that all our hearts would respond and say, yeah, Lord, I want to be, I want to finish strong, finish well. Jesus is talking about athletics. Let me use a different analogy. The Christian life isn't a 100-meter sprint over this really quick. It's a long-distance race. It's like a marathon, if you will. So we need to pace ourselves for the long haul. Get ready for the long haul. Prepare to finish well. Let's try to finish strong. Not just make it crawling to the end, barely getting there. Try to finish well. It's like Paul wanted to do. So how do we do it? Well, we sang earlier about uh, that day. Yeah, that day when Jesus will return, or maybe when we will meet him face to face. Paul was always looking forward to that day, the day of Christ's return, or if it was before, the day when he got to heaven to see Jesus face to face. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about that day? Paul thought about it all the time. He felt motivated, felt keeping, felt kept to keep, keeping going. So I wonder, have you considered how you'll finish? Have you wondered about how you'll finish? Having a healthy balance in your life now will help you. Having a healthy balance between the life now and what thinking of the life to come will help you. Because you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. So you might say all sorts of things on your passport, depends on what nationality you are, depends on uh, what country you're from originally, you could say a whole number of things. So if you're a Christian this morning, it's like saying heaven on your passport. Because you're a citizen of that place. Now it's important we don't get so caught up in heavenly things or useless when it comes to earthly things. But similarly, it's no good being up there on now. We need to keep that balance between earthly things and heavenly things. We need to live with that day in mind, working for God's glory in all that we do. So you can honour God as much in your daily work as you can in a meeting like this this morning. If you're going to be in a different place tomorrow, you're going to be in a different place tomorrow morning, but if you're going to be in a place of work tomorrow morning, come 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, whatever it might be for you, if you're going to be there tomorrow morning, you can honour God there as much as you can here this morning. And whether your work is in a place of work, or whether it's running a home, or raising a family, or teaching, or running a business, or studying even. You can honour God by the way that you work. Now think of Daniel in the Old Testament. He honoured God. He worked for a secular or even ungodly regime, and he was able to honour God in it. So did David, another character in the Old Testament. Plenty of other examples in our Bible of men and women who honoured God in their work. Are you one of those? Do you honour God? in your daily work, in what you do. 
You know, actually, we are all called upon to push the limits to honour God in what we do. Don't make the mistake of somehow thinking that some Christian work is more spiritual than any other. It's not. It's not. We honour God by the way we work. So make sure you're honouring God in your workplace where you're functioning. Bringing witness for Him. Bringing in the kingdom of God in your sphere of influence. In your friendship circle. Whatever and wherever that might be. Let them watch you do the rest of your life and live for God's glory as you do it. As we finish, let me turn back to that passage from Hebrews. The writer says this. Since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Is there anything that you need to throw off this morning? Anything that hinders, gets in the way? It may not be sinful, but it's the old nature. And for me, some years ago, well, for many years, I was a member of Tuesday Rambler. And I gave, I gave hours, I mean, many, many hours, doing all sorts of things, leading youth groups, preaching first days, providing first aid cover at Lakeheath Bake and large things like the London Marathon and others. And I loved it. And I, I gave hours into, into, into doing that. Maybe one day I'll tell you a photo of me in a bonnet, but that's not for today. And then I, and I loved it. I, I loved being with the people and involved, and it was, it was a great thing to do. It wasn't a bad thing to do. But for me, it got to a point where I knew I had to give it up. It wasn't sinful. It wasn't bad. But I knew it was just something that I needed to give up. And for me, the issue is pride. It took a lot of pride. And I needed to put these two slimy different ideas down. And perhaps you had to give it up. So if you, there's anything you need to throw off that's sinful, that's bad, or maybe you just feel God speaking to you that perhaps you have to go for it. The third category, the writer of the Hebrew talks about, Hebrews talks about, is sin. Where it's easy to get entangled in. So again, sin you need to get rid of. That's not the same as uh, things that hinder, although obviously it does hinder. Is there anything you need to get rid of this morning? you, deal with it, right here, right now, beginning of a new year, before God, deal with it, get rid of it, and decide to run that race, decide to run with perseverance, the race that God has yet to run for you, because each of you have got a race, every one of you, for every one of you there are rewards, prizes, crowns that you ought to win, you ought to be faithful by making the most of the rest of your life living it for his glory. Let's stand together. We're going to pray. The band can come back up. Worship as we finish. Can we sing I will worship the Lord our God? As we sing, then uh, <coughs> I want to ask you if you want to respond to any one of those challenges really that the passage in Hebrews brings us. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And whether it be for you that it's just throwing off something that hinders, maybe it's sinful, just gets in the way. Do you want to deal with that before God this morning?
Now I invite you to come and respond to him. Maybe for you there's sin you need to get rid of, repent of and deal with this morning. Or again, I want to invite you to come as well. Or maybe the third category might just be that at the beginning of this year, you want to say to God that afresh this morning, you want to run that race that he has for you. To run with perseverance the race that God has got marked out for you. There are three very different things. But whichever one you might want to respond to this morning, I'd love to pray with you and I'd love to to help you and pray with you and see all that God is doing in you this morning. So if that's you for any of those three, now did you really start them together so there wouldn't be any embarrassment as to which one you might be responding to? Then as we sing now, I want you to come to the front and in a moment we'll pray just before we sing. Okay? Is that clear? That makes sense? Let's sing and worship God together. You come.